friends, welcome back. Oh, hey, it's me, Carly. And Kelsey. Welcome to the She Attitudes podcast. Clap, 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 clap. We are um, really excited to bring you today's conversation with Dr. Gregory Cole. Oh my gosh, this has been the day I have been waiting for. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. We had the best time. We it had was, so much fun. It was so awesome. So, um... Before we do that, I mean, we want to give him as much time as possible, so we aren't necessarily going to draw out this introduction very long. Yeah, we're probably going to skip our normal questions so that we can just get you right into this conversation with Greg. Uh, but but we do have to, 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 to tell you all, if you did not see on the socials, we got our first dose of Dolly Parton's DNA. We did. The Moderna vaccine. Oh, Dolly. I feel... Oh man, I just feel her with me today. Yes, I've uh, my hair was blonder this morning. That's I'm pretty it. sure that's been my only side effect. My eyebrows look extra good today. That oh, also must be part of it. Oh, I have an urge to wear really long, tall, high heels. I do also. <gasps> it's working. It's working. We're slowly becoming Dolly Parton. I hope. I mean, honestly, if we're talking about wanting to love people like Jesus, she does that well. And using our resources to help others, I want to be more like Dolly. Amen. Um, but seriously, uh, I know a lot of people are concerned about being vaccinated, what that looks like. And I know that the second dose is usually the one with more side effects. Um, but I feel great. Yeah, we're happy to report we haven't had any issues on this first dose. Second dose will be different, we're sure. But yeah. arm was just kind of sore. But mm-hmm. other than that, again, like... I feel awesome. Some ibuprofen did the trick. Yeah. I've had harder times with the flu shot. So. Yeah. Um, but again, we know that the second one is usually worse. And we know that Pfizer's is different from Moderna. So. And isn't um, there, there's also a Johnson & Johnson one, right? Yes. Although we will say, um, we were talking with the, the nurse who administered our shots. And she was saying that um, in terms of, like, trying to decide, like, which one to get. If any of you are in that spot of wondering, like, there's these these different ones. Like, is one better than another? She said, not really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that that you kind of just, just take what you get. Like there's um, some side effects might be different, but in terms of uh, what they're really seeing long-term, um, mm-hmm. uh, it's okay to just go where there is an option and take what they've got. Mm-hmm. So, so this isn't intended to force anyone or brainwash anyone into taking a vaccine if you're uncomfortable. Um, but we do just want to share our experience that so far it's been positive and we're excited to Move Come. toward move toward normal, hopefully. Yeah, get yeah. back to some normalcy. So um yeah. There's that. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah, no, we're just we just we gotta jump into this with Greg. Let's do it. Dr. Gregory Coles. Okay, fam. Today is the day when Carly and I were first starting to talk, just like considering starting a podcast. I knew I wanted Greg Coles mm-hmm. to be the guy that we had on here to talk to you guys. <laughs> I know he's laughing. He's laughing there in my computer where he's currently sitting because he's with us. He's on my computer on our dining room table. Is it cozy in there, Greg? It's very cozy. Nice and comfy. Yeah. <laughs> we aim to please here at the Shiatitudes podcast. We really, it's our goal to just keep people comfortable. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That seems like such an admirable goal. Thank you. That yeah. really, we love really a comfort in keeping zone. with with the with the tradition of your name and yes. everything it implies. Yeah, I think I think comfort was really Jesus' primary goal. Yeah, and so yes, in an yes. effort to be like him, 
We are here we to are, keep we are you not comfortable. Flipping tables, we're just shifting them so it's more feng shui <laughs> for aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Greg is here to talk with us about his book, just released what a week ago, two weeks ago, something yeah, like that. Yeah, week and a half last Tuesday. Okay, yeah. So, just released new book, No Longer Strangers: Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation, and I am really, really anxious to get into this. But first, Greg. We need to do some quick, quick-ish. It doesn't have to be rapid fire, but quick-ish questions. Three of them are questions that we uh, have asked each other, as well as our sister and cousin when they guest guested, guest appeared on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other three are inspired by your book, but questions we thought maybe perhaps other people would not ask you in interviews. Right? I'm ready. Bring maybe. it on. Maybe. So, first... Your Enneagram number. Please do share that information with us. I am a nine wing one. Mm-hmm. Woo Wing one. Although I will say, for those of you, you Enneagramatures out there <laughs> who may who may know this language, he's got he's got an eight wing that that bears itself every now and then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's there's a bit of a silent assassin in this guy who t- just shows up at the right moment. <laughs> there's it's kind of a Nemo Lucky Finn situation. Yes. Like, it's there. It's definitely there. It's working. So, we'll see. I was going to say, we'll see, if, we'll see if we get spicy enough today for my, for my eight for side the, to come Oh, I up. do hope. Uh, yeah, she says the same about me. I identify with nine wing one. But as of late, as of late, she goes, there's the eight. There's the eight. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Um, Greg, can you remember... The first book you read that either shaped or sh- uh, or shook your worldview. Ooh, well, if we go with shaped, I read uh, "The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe" at a quite young age. You uh, nines, that was her answer too. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just it's just so yeah, it, it's it's so it's so wonderful. It's so much of my understanding of how how God interacts with the world, mm-hmm. uh, what, what it means to pursue a kind of faith that is not just like something that you paste onto the rest of your life, but that fundamentally transforms the way you view the world. For me, that's like got Narnia written all over it. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that's what I would say. If, if we, if we went with transform, then I would probably have to go a little bit later, um, in my childhood, it would probably be a book written by Madeline Langle. I would have yeah, to think hard see? and long about which one. And this is where we become of one mind. Because <laughs> she's up there for me too. Yeah. Have I I think I've talked about her on here before. Yeah, uh, we have. Amazing. So uh, good. Yeah. Greg, um, which biblical character do you most relate to? Either at this time in your life or just overall? Is there someone who you who you really relate to when you read through scripture? Ooh. Uh, you know, mm, here's the thing. The, the first thing that popped into my head um, was, I don't, uh, are you familiar with Nicole Nordman, first of all? Of course. Um, okay. Uh, Nicole. Nicole. I, just, I, I say that as if we're on a first name basis. We're not. I <laughs> just we? think she's amazing. And yes. she also has been, you know, remarkably formative in, in my uh, process of faith. Um, but Nicole Nordman, uh, 
there's this wonderful album called Songs or Music Inspired by the Story. Yep. Um, yeah. And it came out around the same time that the story, which was like an arrangement of the Bible, was published. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and all of the people who sing these songs, you know, it's a bunch of different Christian artists. Yeah. But all of the lyrics on the album are written by Nicole Nordman. And... Uh, and the and the songs, especially the Old Testament album, which like um, the the New Testament album is you know fine and good too, but the Old Testament album, it's all these songs that are written in first person perspective of particular Bible characters. Love it. Um, and there are a couple characters uh, who really came alive for me uh, in the context of that song, like thinking about the their stories not as somebody who's outside of them, but as somebody who's actually within mm-hmm. them. Um, and experiencing the things that they're experiencing. And I think the song about Moses, never before listening to that album would I have been like, you know who I really identify with in the Bible? Moses. I Like, there, there's just a lot of like, <laughs> Moses and I, I, I didn't naturally think of him as like a real, a real tidy bedfellow for me. <laughs> um, and yet the way, so, so, so some of the things that this song brought to light for me about Moses um, and just about his own his own sense of inadequacy to do the things that he feels very strongly that God is calling him to do, um, and then just sort of doing them anyway and being like, "Well, screw it, I'm I, <laughs> I may not be cut out for this, but like it's all I've got." Um, I find myself I find myself resonating quite a bit with Moses these days. Yeah, I am. My mind continues to be blown at how similar the two of you are. <laughs> the same answer. <laughs> Carly, I knew we were bound to be friends. I knew it. Knew Moses it. must have been a nine. Do you think? Maybe. Or if no, David was a four. We don't have to speculate. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, some some quick some quick cues inspired by your book, Greg. <clears throat> have you ever? We're really we're trying to really dig deep with this one. Can't wait. Have you ever actually eaten haggis? I have never eaten haggis. It's actually a point of sadness for me. Is it Not really? that I'm like eagerly seeking it out, but on the other hand, I just feel like provided the opportunity, why would you not seize such a golden opportunity? Mm-hmm. I might not seize it. <laughs> <laughs> if it's an experience I don't think I'm going to enjoy, I'm probably not very likely to. But if it's a funny story, then perhaps yes. if I can get a story out of it. I don't know. Yeah, that's usually the go-to. Um, um, so I have a question. You shared in your sto- in your story about um, a, an amateur film that you produced as a child. And as as a childhood amateur filmmaker myself, I, I have a technical question um, <laughs> about your your Star Wars fandom interpretation first what is your choice of lightsaber color oh you know so the only thing that we used for a lightsaber in the film because we wanted something that could be like drawn and actually like see you like come out like a lightsaber so obviously the plastic lightsabers were out for that reason sure. so what we used i had a retractable umbrella the kind where when you push the button it springs out and so what we used the, the one scene where there's a lightsaber involved um, is when, so, so my friend Zach, who's like the Jedi master in this, he comes out, um, and, uh, he, he like leaps onto the screen, pulls out the umbrella and he's like, die Sith. And then he pushes the button and the thing springs out and he swings it around and it's an umbrella. And then he looks at it and he's like, what the, 
who did this? And then you like hear me in the background like chuckling, and he's like, all right. And then he like leaves the screen. So that Solid. was our one sort of lightsaber moment. Sure. The umbrella, I can tell you, it, it was it was just a black umbrella. Oh, sure, sure. Is that so, evil? No, evil's red in Star Wars, right? <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> she, I'm the only one who this gets is starting, Star Wars. This is starting to sound a little bit more like Spaceballs than Star Wars. <laughs> Which, there's I mean, a classic. Mel Brooks it was, take it was to definitely this. a loose interpretation of Star Wars. <laughs> fair, sure. fair. So my, my more technical question regarding the filmmaking process, um, I'm just curious what sort of CGI effects you used to like use the Force. What did that okay. look like? Yeah, yeah. So we had some really good ones. Uh, there was one where we were we were like, well, we would push and pull things, and for that, it was mostly a lot of strings. You know, somebody mm-hmm. off screen who could tug on the tug on the string. Were the strings uh, visible in the film? Yes, love it. all the strings I are love very everything visible. About beautiful, that. beautiful. We, um, I will say, my my very favorite special effect that we did. Um, there's one scene where Zach gets particularly beat up by something. I, I forget if I like shut him in a door accidentally or like opened an umbrella on him. What's going on? Anyway, so he's like kind of beat up, and so he gets up and he's like he's pretending that his like neck is turned to one side. So he grabs his head and he pulls his neck upright to like get the. And what we did is I hid behind the door with a plastic water bottle. And at just the moment that he pulls his head to the other side, I crunch the water bottle and it gets just the most gratifying like sound. Uh, it, it, it was so pleasing. Every time I rewatch it, I'm just like, and, and I say every time I rewatch it, I haven't rewatched it in like years and years. <laughs> But I am still impressed by our genius. Yes, yes, wow. So the next time we make a film together, um, we'll have to work that into Use the plot the one, yeah, somehow. I definitely there are some there are some gems yeah. in in our family canon of home <laughs> of home video making. Um, a lot of movie spoofs. It wasn't James and the Giant Peach, but it was Peach and the Giant James. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it, that sounds that was, like a real winner. It was our parents liked it. Essentially, <laughs> essentially, the plot is a giant James sees a peach and he eats it. The end. We went uh, all innovative. <laughs> Thanks. We didn't know about water bottle water bottles for neck breaking. We did have really good camera angles to make our tiny cousin look giant. Art. <laughs> Talent. <laughs> Okay, one final question. Uh, well, obviously, the whole talk is going to be about your book. But one final, uh, uh, what's, what are we going for? Like, unasked question from your book or, or, or unlikely to be asked question from your book? Off the top of your head, Greg, scientific word for an ice cream headache. Sphenopalatine ganglionoralgia. Okay, fancy pants. <laughs> Spell it. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, S-P-H-E-N-O-P-A-L-A-T-I-N-E. And then... G-A-N-G-L-I-O-N-E-U-R-A-L-G-I-A. Did you have the book open to check? Me? You. No, I believe him. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, we'll have to play back the recording later. Um, I really... Usually I'm pretty decent at, like, spelling off the top of my head, like, picturing it and being able to say the letters correctly. But occasionally I feel like I get lost in the middle of trying to imagine the word. I really thought I was going to get you with that one. Did you, did you think that I just had to look it up and then, like, put it in the book to impress people? Not, no. I just thought it was one of those that was like, oh, I, I knew this word at one point, but it's not like I just use it every day, so now I'm going to... Oh, no. No, it's well, right I mean, up in there. Most of the words... So, so for context, for those who are listening and have not read the book, <laughs> um, 
I, I have these young friends named Max and Grant who I met when they were six and three. And now Max just turned 11 yesterday. Oh, um, happy Grant birthday. Is 14 now. So, uh, yeah, we, I sent him an email for his birthday. Part of it is written in Greek letters. Um, so he has to transliterate it into English so that he can read it. Cute. Um, <laughs> so because fun. That's, Here's your that's birthday gift. You have some work to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really it's a yeah it, it's my gift to him uh, but no so uh so max and grant because they're my kind of children i've taught them a lot of big words and and so most of the big words that i teach to max and grant are words that i also know well enough that i can like have more conversation with them about these words um, at one point after after coronavirus came along i did send grant a list of well three separate lists of what i called corona vocab and I was like, you know, Grant, I hear that you're not attending school in person right now. <laughs> it seems to me that you probably have some more time on your hands. So I'd like to recommend some vocabulary to you. And so some of the words that I sent him as Corona vocab, I was like, crap, I don't really know these words terribly well either. So then I had to study up so that I could make sure that when wow. he used the words, I wouldn't be falling behind. What a know? good teacher. It's good to know what you're teaching your students. That's like the I first usually thing. I frequently am learning it as I'm teaching it. That's how I study is like helping them learn. <laughs> okay, okay. No, I really did think that that wasn't gonna just rattle off so easily. I, I'm not the victor here. That's okay. Uh, okay. No, we will get into the serious stuff. This book, Greg, is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It is so, it's so beautiful. Not just, I mean, like physically speaking, I love this cover, like how it feels. Isn't it fun? The texturing? Yes. I didn't know they were going to do that, but I was so gloriously pleased when I got my copies. Almost a denim effect to it. It's, but, but, but the writing, the writing is also just so phenomenally good. It's, I mean, it's classic Kohl's and I'm just going to like sit here and gush to your face, but it's just... (laughs) It's so receive good. it. Go on. Go on. <laughs> receive that word. No, it's so good. And for the people listening who think that I just like have a bias because of course she's going to think her friend's writing is good. Here's the thing. I knew him as a writer first. Mm-hmm. I It was his writing that actually started the friendship. I had uh, purchased Greg's first book, which... Um, I will let I will let Greg actually walk you through that that book in a minute. Um, but I it was seemingly a random just Amazon suggestion uh, felt random at the time the the content of the book was something I was very interested in and was a perspective I had not yet heard. So I purchased the book and um, read it in one night. I could not stop reading it. I just like physically couldn't do it. I tried to stop and I was like, I can't I sobbed cover to cover (laughs) like ugly heaves just horrifying and the moment I was done it was well after midnight but the moment I was done I put the thing down I immediately like found Greg's website online found the contact page and I remember writing the line like a subject line with thanks for your writing and then I I blacked out. I don't remember anything that came after that. I was just like a mess of tears, just like fingers flying. Just I don't even remember what I was just like an emotional mess. Just so moved. It was like I was convicted but worshiping. Like it was just this like, oh my gosh, just this whole big grand experience. So I don't remember a thing that I said. I just remember like fingers flying, tears flying, send. And then he responded like such a gentleman probably was like, this girl's having a moment. And he, <laughs> <laughs> and 
some attention paid to her. But that that kind of it just progressively grew into such a wonderful, a wonderful friendship. Greg's one of my my favorite names to see light up my screen, whether it be a text or an email. Oh shucks. For the record, I think that first email that you sent, I'm pretty sure your first sentence was like I could jump guns for a living. <laughs> well, because I think you were trying to warn me, like this email's about to get real, real, real fast. Um, and, yeah, that's and I still just, true. I remember reading that first line and being like, "Oh, this email gonna be fun." <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I could jump guns for a living. <laughs> that's fun that I said first thing you ever learned about me. <laughs> At least it was an I, honest thing. I'd have to I'd have to double check that. I could I could go back in the archives and see, but that is my recollection is that my first thought about Kelsey Nelson was she could jump guns for a living. It's an accurate first thought to have. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone who knows me like that, yeah, yeah. Um so all of that to say his writing is good. And I'm not just saying that because he's my friend. The writing is <laughs> so, so good. Um, but though we're here to talk about No Longer Strangers, I do think, Greg, um, that you should kind of walk us through what your first book was about and the story there. Um, because I think, while it's not necessarily required reading for the second book, mm-hmm. um, that lens uh, provides a lot of clarity to the significance of of the message of the second book, I think. So go ahead and give us give us a brief brief synopsis. I hate to say the word brief because it's just <laughs> how do you how do you condense someone's big life story? But please please walk us through that, would ya? Uh, yes, and and I'll I'll agree with your assessment that though I think I, I optimistically hope that the the second book stands alone in its own way. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not a sequel per se. Yeah, um, but it does. Uh, it, it draws upon some of the themes that I wrestle with in book number one. Yeah. Uh, I get I get to play out and, and to think hopefully about in book number two. Yeah. Uh, in ways that I that I hope are productive. So so book book number one uh, is called Single Gay Christian, mm-hmm. uh, which is a title that leaves very little to the imagination. We don't have a ton of questions after that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've solved it for you. Um, uh, the book is, uh, it's its about my own journey uh, of coming to terms with my experience of sexuality. So being relatively young, you know, getting into puberty, hearing, I grew up in, in Christian spaces, so I grew up going to youth group and, you know, uh, and being in church. And sort of the thing that I heard about myself as like a young man entering puberty was like, look, Coles, we know you're going to want to look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it. And I was like, okie dokie, you know, like no pictures of naked women and discovered that I was really, really remarkably good at not looking at pictures of naked women. Good for you, Um, Greg. Ah, thank you so much. You know, I was like so pleased with myself. I was like, I think it's just because I love Jesus so much. I've been spared, you know. Amen. uh, yeah, so I'm, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty pleased, feeling like the holiest 12 year old in the world. Um, and and interesting, you know, of course, that early experience of sexuality, of feeling like, oh, I've been spared from this thing that everybody else <laughs> is suffering from, uh, takes a little turn when I realize, like, oh, wait, no, I do, in fact, have an experience of sexuality. It's just not the one that I was braced for. Yeah. Um, and went very quickly from feeling like the holiest 12-year-old in the world to feeling like the worst possible 12-year-old in the world. Yeah. The one who was so bad that nobody had even bothered to warn me that I might exist. Mm-hmm. And... And so that that launched for me uh, a, a number of seasons of wrestling in various ways. Um, 
you know, I, I did some early study. I was like, okay, it seems there's a word for this. It's called gay. Um, and, and then I was, I was like, okay, let's check in and see what the people have to say about like what you do about this. If you're following Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a couple narratives I found the one that was most prevalent by far in the faith communities that I was in, uh, was the ex gay narrative, which said, basically, you know, you figure out what has gone wrong in your life. You probably had a distant father and an overbearing mother. And I looked at my own parents and I was like, okay, my parents are great. Like, mm-hmm. trust me, if you guys can meet my parents, so quality. Um, but I was like, I don't, I don't see the the sort of family trauma that you're saying should have caused this. Um, but the ex-gay narrative also said, you know, you just got to pray, you got to submit yourself to Jesus, and then over the over time, you are healed and you become straight, which is what you're supposed to be in order to follow Jesus. And I was like, well, hey, prayer I can do. I'm down <laughs> with a bit of prayer. So, so I prayed, and and you know that was that was that was my plan through through middle school and high school and college. Uh, I dated a very nice young lady in college. Uh, and accomplish nothing other than realizing that dating a nice young lady did not make me any straighter. Uh, and and so at the at the end of at the end of this this sort of season of of waiting to become straight, I looked back and realized, you know, I have grown in my faith, I have deepened in my love for Jesus, um, but it has not made me any more like the straight person who I'm told I ought to be. Yeah. Um, and so suddenly doubting that bit of the narrative that I had received, I began to doubt all the other things that I had received also. So I was like, okay, let's take a hot second and decide like, do I even believe in Jesus? Like, do I even think I trust the Bible for anything? Uh, upon deciding that I, I still did think Jesus was a thing, um, <laughs> uh, that he was still worth following. Then I was like, okay, I think I now need to revisit what it is that Jesus has to say uh, to those of us who are exclusively attracted to the same sex and remain that way, because that appears to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I did some wrestling uh, through, through what the Bible had to say uh, through the famous clobber passages, yeah. um, uh, but also through, you know, the broader narrative of scripture to ask, how does the Bible seem to describe marriage and the intention of marriage? Um, and what seems to be the purpose of human sexuality? Mm-hmm. Um, and where is the passage that everybody seemed to imply existed in there somewhere in the book of Second Hesitations that's like, <laughs> then shalt thou be straight? You know, like, why can I not find that passage? <laughs> and, and so at the end of all this wrestling with the Bible, um, I concluded, you know, first of all, I realized, like, there is no promise that I'll be straight. Um, and there's also not a promise that I'll be married. And there's not a promise that I'll have sex. And... Uh, and when it came to the question of sexual ethics, like, is it possible for me to enter into, you know, a same-sex committed monogamous relationship? Uh, could that be a thing that I could do as a committed follower of Jesus that would be, you know, the most honoring uh, thing to God? Um, and I found that that conversation was complicated. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, we could talk for hours about why that conversation is complicated. Like, I, I, why I am very viscerally sympathetic to people who reach an open and affirming or a more progressive sexual ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I when I tried my utmost uh, to let the Bible tell me the things that it wanted to tell me, instead of just having the Bible tell me the things that I wanted to hear from it, mm-hmm. um, the conclusion that I reached was that uh, my, my options were to be in, in an opposite sex marriage or, uh, to be single and celibate, um, and not experiencing a particular desire to be in an opposite sex marriage. Um, I concluded, well, 
I suppose we'll be celibate then. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so a a lot of, a lot of my book then, you know, part of it is, is that wrestling, but then a lot of it is just me sort of trying to figure out like what comes next. I was like that much I can do like to get uh, intellectually to the place where I say I should choose to be celibate because this is what I understand Jesus to be calling me to is one thing. But then what does it look like to actually live that out in a way that is hopeful rather than hopeless um, in a way that is, uh, eagerly taking the kind of delight in my life that God takes in me rather than self-hating, self-loathing, you know, the, the sorts of things that might be applied to my story if it were seen from the outside. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's what Single Gay Christian is about. I was thinking as I was, when I first got your manuscript for No Longer Strangers and I was reading through it, it made me emotional because I remember reading in the first book these questions of like, am I really, am I going to be able to belong anywhere? Mm-hmm. And now here I am, you know, looking at this other, these other pages full of musings on belonging and how to find it and create it. And it was just, it felt that this full circle thing where, you know, you don't necessarily like suddenly have answers, but you have peace Mm -hmm. in, in some stuff that, that felt shaky in the first book. And it, I, I just felt so so happy about that Mm -hmm. I don't really Mm -hmm. you know it just I don't know if I felt like I just have this front row seat to such an amazing story but um but yeah so I think the another just amazing thing about your writing and I think this is um this is a gift that you have but I think it's also just the power of storytelling is um you don't have to share specific details in order to read through your work and say me too Mm -hmm. Um, we have very little specific details in common you and I as we're learning you and Carly have have some more more. (laughs) but still a lot of big ones no yeah Um, there's very very little detail that we have in common and yet when I read through your stories it's every page you know I'm able to say like I felt that I've asked that question that you know and so I think that that's you know you don't have you don't have to be part of the LGBTQ community to you know, you don't have to have had that wrestle to read through these stories mm-hmm. and learn more about God because of it or more about yourself. Um, all of that is still offered in here. Um, but in terms of your specifics, you are also a TCK. Yes. Yes. Um, can you talk us through what that means? Because that's a new term for a lot of our people, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so the acronym TCK stands for Third Culture Kid, mm-hmm. uh, and and where it comes from is it uh, it's, it's it's kids who grow up uh, not in the place that their parents are originally from. Um, the idea of the third culture here is that if uh, if the if the culture your parents are originally from is culture number one, and the culture that you are raised in is culture number two then you as a child within that context don't really totally own either of those cultures. Mm -hmm. And so what do you call your culture except some third thing? Um, So, so, so that's a, that's a third culture kid, a TCK. And so in my context, um, you know, my parents are from America. I mean, originally, you know, uh, my dad is like the European sample platter of like (laughs) ethnicities. um, And my mom is mostly German. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, both of their both of their ancestors have been in the States for a decent chunk of time. Uh, 
so so from from the United States. Uh, but then when when I'm three years old, my family moves to Indonesia. Uh, and Indonesia is where I grow up. Fun facts about Indonesia for those of you who are like, where in Africa is that? <laughs> uh, not in Africa. Um, uh, it is uh, island Southeast Asia, um, roughly. So I'm in Pennsylvania right now. It's roughly like if I dig a hole straight down from Pennsylvania and pop out the other side of the globe, I'll more or less be in Indonesia. Hmm. Uh, That's kind of fortuitous. <laughs> Um, it is also the fourth most populous nation in the world. Wow. Um, so yeah, um, and it's not—it's not that big. <laughs> well, no. So so here's the interesting thing about the size of Indonesia. If you drew a line around all the islands, mm-hmm. the the line that you drew would be about the size of the contiguous United States. Oh, okay. Um, but these are islands we're talking about <laughs> with lots and lots of water in between. Yeah. So if you want to talk landmass, let me just give you some context for how good we are at fitting people into small spaces in Indonesia. <laughs> um, the island that I grew up on is called the island of Java. Um, it's where you get your coffee. Uh, you're welcome. Nice. And score. Uh, Java is about the size of North Carolina. Um, okay. But it has about half of Indonesia's population hmm. on it. Uh, so we're talking like at, in the like maybe like 130 ish million people wow. if if I'm remembering that statistic right, but like thereabouts all crammed into North Carolina. Um, so we cram the people in. That's how we got to be number four in the world. It's also the world's most populous Muslim nation, uh, Muslim majority, yeah, um, about 90 percent. Um, so yeah, so so I grew up there, um, and that. Even even before I was wrestling with sexual identity and trying to figure out like what does it look like to belong uh, in in church spaces and just in the world as somebody who's like gay and celibate and loves Jesus in a world that's sort of like fears all three of those things. Uh-huh. Um, like even before I was wrestling with any of that, I already had the sense that like okay, I don't really fit in Indonesia because mm-hmm. I'm like way too white and I don't like I'm not from here. Like I don't have a stake in like the future of this country. Um, uh, and yet, like, I'm certainly not from America. You know, we would go back to America for, for like furloughs and I would be like, I'm barely more than a glorified tourist here. Yeah. Uh, so there has always been in my life, this, this sense of question about like, where do I fit? Where am I supposed to be yeah. in the world? And before you moved to Indonesia, you, I mean, your first years of life, your family was itinerant, right? Like you basically, yeah. you essentially lived in a van. So it was like your home moved. There was mm-hmm. this very like nomadic lifestyle and so then when you when you leave quote unquote home and move to somewhere where you do actually plant and hold still what you know of the world is that it moves all the time and now suddenly you know it's just it's fascinating to me um did you know when you moved so you were three you said when you went to yes yep did you know yet at that time um that this is this is different this is a different place like did the culture feel shocking at that point in your life i think you know uh my parents have told me i wasn't filing a lot of memories in these days right um but the reports from my parents apparently i was a very verbal child which you know shocker, shocker. Who would have seen it coming? <laughs> um uh but uh my, my parents have said uh that because i was very verbal and very verbal pretty early they were able to explain a lot a lot of what was going on and to kind of process it with me mm-hmm. um, so i think i was largely aware mm-hmm. um and 
And the funny thing about becoming aware of something as a child is whatever you become aware of as a child is the thing that you think of as the norm from which every other experience diverges. Mm -hmm. So like I would hear about like when I was a kid, I would hear about like the kids who lived in America and I felt sorry for them. Like the way the kids who lived in America feel sorry for like the poor little children in Africa. Right. I'm, I'm over here like all oh, those poor little children in America, like <laughs> stuck in a single country. They never get to see the world. Like what a heartbreak <laughs> they must go through. They only speak one language. What a, you know, what an impoverished experience of the world. Uh, and I, so I just want to say, you know, wow, we have this opportunity that I just feel great compassion for you both Thank that you. you had to grow up in America. Thanks. Uh, Even though we we did have more than one language, though, I will <laughs> toss that out. There. Which Greg, Greg, throw us just real quick. Throw us your finish. Just drop it real quick. Oh, minun ni many on Greg. Yeah, right. Look at that. He threw that at me once on Zoom. I didn't know, and I was like, "Oh my gosh! Why do people always know at least one sentence? Like randomly, when I meet people, they'll know a sentence and finish." See, the ones that I know and finish are probably not podcast appropriate. Yeah, no, we can. So. <laughs> Um, so you, you share a story in, in your book and it's one of those silent assassin moments that I alluded to. You just, you have this way. And I told this to you when I emailed you after I read the manuscript of really setting me up with like solidarity and making me feel like, yeah, me too, Greg. Yeah. I've, I've experienced that. Yeah. Same. And then you'll have one sentence that's like, and you suck for it. So I also suck for it. Absolutely. So, yeah. And so there is, if I'm, if I may share, oh, when you're talking about being a, a white person in Indonesia and how that essentially sets you up as, as the rich, you are, um, there's kind of a, is it, is it a formal caste system in Indonesia or is it? No, no, just informal. Okay. Um, but because you're white, you you're seen as a rich person. And so when you walk on the streets, there are going to be people who are asking you for money. And just as here, um, you know, you learn to just not make eye contact because what if that embarrasses them? Like, what if that shames them? You know, like you don't want to hurt their feelings by looking at them and then having nothing. And then you say, Greg, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Ah, oh my gosh, just a knife in the heart. Greg Coles. Ah. I mean, why'd you do that? <laughs> I, think, I think I've decided that anytime, anytime one can just quote Jesus and it feels like such a knife in the heart, we should probably quote Jesus more often. Mm -hmm. uh, Preach that word, Greg. That's good. All right. <laughs> Um, I am curious to know, so you went to an international high school. Yeah. Was your church experience international or how, how informed by Indonesian culture was your church experience? So, uh, it varied over the course of time. When I was younger, um, I went to an Indonesian church with my parents, uh, and they were involved in a handful of different Indonesian church contexts over the course of time. Uh, some very contextual um, specific to the, like some of the work that they were doing had to do with contextual, uh, church planting. Like how do we, you know, how, how do we, how do we make this make sense for the local people? But there's also an Indonesian church, uh, broadly, uh, that is 
a bit more Western in its way of doing things, you know, totally populated by Indonesians, but a lot of their model for how to quote unquote do church yeah. comes from a more Western place. Um, and so, uh, so that was, you know, that was some of my church experience growing up was like Indonesian churches, but churches that were largely uh, modeled off of a, off of a Western way of doing things. Um, and and then, uh, so yeah, a couple of those. And then when I was in maybe middle school or high school, I think middle school, um, I was wanting to start to get more involved into church in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Indonesian church that my parents were at was large enough and it was sort of intimidating enough to think about like, how would I really be involved in any meaningful way there? Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did is I instead started going um with at various times, my siblings, my mom, or just by myself, I started going also to an international church um, that actually met on the campus of my international school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was an English-speaking church, um, which is why my Indonesian spiritual vocabulary is not as good as it could be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, an, an English-speaking church that was, I would guess, about a third of the folks there were native Indonesians. Um, and, then prob- and then the rest of us were sort of an interesting grab bag, lots of Koreans at my international church. Um, and then, you know, some, some folks from the U S and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, um, and the UK, of course. Mm, Uh, Yeah. And, and some Finnish people, which is, which is where I learned my Finnish. Uh, one time, one time we had a Finnish guy, um, preach the sermon. Um, and he told us, he was like, do you know that, at, like after the resurrection in heaven, we will all speak Finnish. Um, he's saying this with his Finnish accent, which I really can't mimic for you, but he's saying it, you know, he's very serious. And yeah, he's oh like, yeah. do you know why we will all speak Finnish in heaven? And he says, because Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, he say, it is Finnish. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've never forgotten that. I've yeah. always felt like I I'm can't wait to speak Finnish. 0% surprised by that. Finns are so like, just deadpan they're <laughs> always joking but you don't always know because they're they're gonna say it like it's serious and it doesn't even bother them if you don't catch the joke like they're saying yep. it for their own entertainment it's so that's so funny to me oh man I so, love true. That. so i'm curious to know um under this umbrella of belonging how did you see that played out in an international context mm-hmm. kind of as part of a the global church versus just, you know, the Western American church? What did belonging look like in a different place? I think one of the beautiful things about an international context like that is that there's this shared understanding that really nobody fits. uh, Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like there's a moment in, in my newer book uh, where I talk about, the reasons that I loved airports growing up. I still love airports. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things I loved about airports is the fact that like, ev- like nobody has any more claim to that than anybody else, you know? Um, uh, like in, in an airport, you know, like everybody's just passing through, except maybe the employees, but like, <laughs> but for the most, you know, like we go to airports specifically because none of us belong there and they're the same in every country, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and I think there can be a similarly beautiful dynamic um, when you're in a sort of like 
purposefully and self-consciously international context like that is that at least on the level of national identity, you can all sort of agree with the statement like, look, we don't really know where we're from and we've just decided we're going to need to root our sense of belonging in something other than like gathering around the flag and singing the anthem, right. which I will note is I think an enormously healthy thing for faith. Mm-hmm. I, I think far too many expressions of Christianity in the United States uh, have far too much sense of national identity identity, um, flavoring and even subverting uh, the true nature of their pursuit of Jesus. Absolutely. We just did an episode. Amen. We just did an episode, like a close, well, as close of a read as you can get in an hour. Um, But we just did an episode on Philippians and uh, that idea of true citizenship is uh, all over there. And um, yeah, a reminder that, that we need right now. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, for me as as your fellow nine, the whole middle section of your book, I mean the whole book, but the middle section really resonated where you are leaving Indonesia, you're going to college, and then you're going to grad school, and, and this sense of separation and moving on, and you go to a new, just new places, new friends, losing old relationships, um... Talk about how you are able to keep connection when you move on, or is there a time you need to let go of relationships? Um, how, how do you deal with that sort of change in your relationships? Yeah, so I can tell you the way that I approach it, which I would never offer to others as, as a sort of panacea, like this will cure <laughs> your own relational ails. Um, uh, but I think... It has been healthy for me, especially as somebody who has participated in a lot of communities. Um, It's it's been healthy to decide that the relationships that matter most and the ones that are rooted in the in the truest and most solid things um, are I like to refer to them as camels, um, which is to say. Uh, they don't need constant watering. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. they, they can endure for seasons when you're not in touch. And when you get back together, the assumption is not, well, we haven't been in touch. So clearly we're no longer friends. Mm-hmm. The assumption is, well, we've both been up to the good kingdom work with Jesus. And like, we're just now getting the privilege to be back together, but we're just going to assume that we remain friends. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that has been true. And I mean, of course, you know, you don't, you don't want to never water your camel, right? right? Like, it's not to say that like, yeah, good friendships are the ones you just ignore forever. Um, but I think, uh, I think that, yeah, the, the truest friendships, um, and the ones that are going to be most life giving to begin with, um, are the ones that are rooted in something that is so true of both of you that will continue to be so true of both mm-hmm. of you, mm-hmm. um, that, that there's no question about whether your connection with one another will endure a season of absence. Right. Um, and so I think for me, um, you know, by, by far the, by far the strongest thing in which to root a friendship is a shared sense of passion and calling for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're on the same page about that, uh, then, then, then you're always, you're always moving in the same direction, even when you are not together. Uh, And there's a joy about that. It does mean if you decide, okay, I'm going to invest in those friendships. Uh, then, uh, then it does mean that there are some friendships that you might try to treat like camel friendships and discover that they are not in fact camel friendships. 
um, discovered that they do in fact wither away mm-hmm. uh, and die in the desert. Um, and, and this is hard for me to say as a nine, this, this pains me to say, but I think it's okay to sometimes let some relationships go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think if we, if we, if we trust enough, uh, that, uh, that God provides to us what we need in each season, then we are both able to say, I can thank God for the beauty of the relationship that I had in the season that I have it, even though I no longer have it. Mm-hmm. And I can continue to trust that when certain friendships fade away because they're no longer in season, that God will bring into season new friendships that I need in order to have the sense of belonging that is necessary for emotional and spiritual health in my life. Um, I think that I think the more we trust God to meet our needs in belonging, uh, the more we can find joy in both what what we trust will be coming and in what has by God's grace drifted away. Mm-hmm. You give a beautiful um, picture of that in your book when you're talking about you know right after you you came out you essentially you came out with your first book you there were some people who knew. But uh, but essentially it was, um, dear friends, I wrote a book. P.S. <laughs> <laughs> Just has that another thing you need to know. Um, but on the on the same day, you both lost a friend over that revelation, and and not long after, there on that same day, were then um, met and loved by another friend for the same reason. And I just, I think that that's just such a beautiful example of like in those moments when you, when you let something go, whether it's a relationship or a dream or whatever it may be, when you, when you let something go, God does come, come in yeah, with something else that, that will feed in that moment. Um, and I think something in that, that resonated with me is that recognition that um, in eternity, there may be reconciliation. Mm-hmm. That that it might be done here. You might have closure here, but who knows what would come later? I I, I just thought that was a beautiful um, reminder that this is temporary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything that happens here is temporary, except for what is informing the eternal. So, yeah, that was beautiful. Um, apart from that, that um that hiccup with your your coming out you've talked you talk about the <laughs> the the major anxiety over it um but you also talk so much about the the overwhelming support that you did receive from the people closest to you like in terms of coming out stories you weren't you weren't excommunicated you weren't exiled you know your your family embraced you your church family um and yet you have also said um in in several talks that you've given how how your um sexual identity can make it difficult to feel like you fit in a church context but your celibacy can make it difficult for you to fit into the lgbt community uh and and even into the church like there's just always this this feeling like there's just stuff about me that just makes me feel like i don't fully fit into the communities i resonate with um, can you kind of just talk through how you navigate that? Yeah, I I think in the same way, I, I said earlier that I think the international church context can be a gift 
because it poses this sort of constant reminder that, in fact, we're not meant to be rooting our sense of belonging together in our national identity. Mm-hmm. I would say that in my in my best and wisest moments, which is admittedly not all of my moments, but let's talk about the best and wisest moments, shall we? Um, in my best and wisest moments, I think I, I would want to treat the other ways in which I do not sort of naturally or tidally fit into the normal categories of belonging uh, as themselves also being kinds of gifts. Uh, because, because, among other things, um, they, they always point me back to the reality that the, that the only truly solid thing on which to root my sense of belonging in the world um, is indeed the person of Jesus and the pursuit of Jesus. Yeah. Um, that, that every other thing that I could theoretically come up with as a way of belonging um, would never be as permanent and would never be as good as that. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it were somewhat, somewhat tempting in some cases. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, that rooting on Jesus often, um, it leads us into this space of not necessarily needing to um, demand belonging for ourselves, um, but to become more um, more apt to create it for other people. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite chapter in the whole book, <laughs> she's nodding because... Vigorously. Um, <laughs> I, I, I read through it and ugly cried again. And then I read and this then chapter. And then set us all down. <laughs> and I'm, listen, listen to this chapter. Okay. okay. I read. I read my sisters the whole chapter out loud, and like, and like had to like like choke a few times because I wasn't gonna cry. I was gonna get through it, but it just is so. Um, the chapter about Buck, and I'm not gonna give spoilers because I want people to buy this book and I want them to be affected by it as they read it mm-hmm. because it's so. We all know a person or people like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know um, people who they're kind of, how did you describe him? Was like an old timey car salesman or a carnival barker or something? Yeah. <laughs> what did I say? Like a rural car, car salesman, yeah. I think. Yeah. Just, you know, lots of talk and maybe kind of crude and, and puffs themselves up enough that you feel like more annoyed by them than you do feeling like you want to agree with the things they're saying about <laughs> themselves. Um and you ended up in this uh, in close quarters with this person as as a tutor, was it for GRE or yes. yeah. yeah, the GRE, yeah. Um, and the story story takes turns that um, that will just break your heart. And I just I did I cried through the whole thing. And that idea that um, you know, that we walk into places with the question of do I belong here? Mm-hmm. But we don't often ask. Mm-hmm. Am I making other people feel like they belong here? Um, oh, I just, I could talk, we could have a whole <laughs> episode just about, just about that chapter. It just devastated me. Um, In the holiest of ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't even know. I know that there's a question that I have lurking in there somewhere, but I guess... Um, um, if you don't come up with it, there are, there are a few tidbits that I can tell you about that chapter. Do. Yeah. Uh, uh, so one interesting thing to note is that that is actually 
it is the first chapter of the book that I started to draft. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, I'm going to write this book and I really want to tell this story. And, and it was, it was terrifying because, and, and for those of you who do any kind of writing, um, you'll know that writing is a very different experience when you feel like, you know, where you're headed or what you're trying to say, <laughs> than it is when you literally are just like, here's a thing that is true, uh-huh. but I don't know what it means. And I'm honestly terrified of what I might find if I write it down. Yeah. This story was very much in the latter category that yeah. I was like, here is an experience that I have had that I feel like I need to process and it has something to do with, with what I'm trying to say. But I was like, I don't know what it is. And I don't know if I'm going to like the way I look at the end of this story. Like Mm -hmm. not that, I mean, this book in general is not like a good PR tool for me. Like I wouldn't say I come across (laughs) looking like a particularly delightful human by the end of it. But, but I think in this story in particular, there was, I knew that there was something that Jesus was trying to teach me personally. And I was Mm -hmm. like, maybe if I write it down, I can figure out what it was. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, that you like that story. Yeah. Uh, And I think that what also makes it so effective is that at the end of it, you're not necessarily left with an answer, but you, but you do say like, maybe the point isn't to answer this. The point is just that I'm asking the question Mm -hmm. and that, that's something that we try to promote here just through this whole platform is more question asking and just being willing to just wonder about the point of something and trust that. Even if God doesn't just give you a clear answer on it, knowing that you needed to ask somehow brings the answer, <laughs> if that makes sense. But yeah, I just, that that chapter was so good. Yeah. It was so yeah. good. Um, that really, thanks for suffering through the, the read aloud of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I read it myself, like I s- still cried. <laughs> like, I, like she already read it to me. I already knew it was coming. And I was still just struck in that, like, how do I make others belong? <laughs> like, you know, um, versus just looking to be included. And, and yeah. Um, but along those lines, kind of in the opposite direction, Um, I know people who hear, you know, people don't feel like they belong. People are excluded. What can we do to make community happen? And so they're striving to get community right. And, but there has to also be like this balance of like, (laughs) when do you let go and, um, I guess rest in the fact that it's not ever going to be perfect, and yet still do strive, but but we don't belong here. In right. Well, how do we settle knowing, like, this is temporary. We're going to, but also <laughs> give it the, its honor that it needs. Um, is that making any sense? Like, now, what do you oh, think? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, this, this is going to be a roundabout answer to your question. Sure. I think it'll come back around. If it doesn't come back around, then at the end, you got to be like, yo, Cole, so you were supposed <laughs> to bring that around and you did not. And maybe we'll see if we can, you know, make it on the second pass. Mm-hmm. But um, so, so when I think about like what actually constitutes a, a meaningful like movement toward belonging, like what sorts of efforts are actually productive in helping generate a sense of belonging. One thing that strikes me uh, and, and this has to do with, uh, I'll, I'll speak first of like my experience at trying to, to belong in church context. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a very different sense when you go to a church and you're like, I'm looking for a nice small group where everyone sits around and they play board games sometimes and we all bring our best foods and we just talk about life and enjoy each other. Do you life know, like, together. 
I realize when I, uh, in the words of the Emperor's New Group, anything sounds bad when you say it with that attitude. Uh, like I have not, I have not painted the most generous picture. Uh, but sometimes in my head, I'm like, is that what I should be looking for? Like maybe I should just find one of those places where they're like the goal is like you will fit here, you will find friends here. Won't it be great? Um, that I think is a very different thing. Uh, than the place that I have actually most often encountered a really deep sense of belonging in church communities, um, which is when there's a group of people with whom I have a sense of myself as being on a common mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for me, uh, one form that that often takes is uh, being part of a worship team and having a sense of like, okay, people, like we're going to work together. We're going to try to lead the congregation. We have a sense of the things that God wants to do in worship. Like we are, we are collectively trying to see that happen. Um, or, I mean, and certainly that's not the only way in which, you know, groups of church folks can be sort of together on mission. Um, but what I found is I belong most truly with the people with whom I am on mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about what it looks like to provide meaningful belonging to others, to offer that to others, um, but also to to have a framework for how I recognize uh, that sometimes people will not choose into belonging and that I can't always take responsibility for that. Um, I think it's helpful uh I think it's helpful to understand that as being in some ways, I always want to be living my life on mission in such a way that my arms of open, uh, my arms of welcome are wide open to anybody who is interested in joining me on that mission. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are no, uh, there are no boundaries that, that keep people from being invited into the glorious journey of following Jesus with me. Um, and yet, uh, if people if people don't don't choose into the to the missions that I'm on, you know, I, I can't I can't force them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I think I think that has helped me um, that has helped me reframe the way that I think about what it is that I'm meant to offer, um, mm-hmm. the degree of responsibility that I think I do indeed have um, to make that sense of welcome ever truer, ever more real, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time uh, to recognize that. Uh, all I can do is provide welcome. Like I can't drag somebody into the family. You know, I can't like get them, get them into the entryway and then like lock the door behind them and be like, you belong now, sucker. (laughs) You know, like there's a sense in which like uh, it's a, it's a two way street, you know? Yeah. Uh, So it's, it's, how do we word it? It's not, um, it's not about doing the thing because Jesus said so. It's about, um, letting it flow from a place where you are rooted in Jesus and what comes from that is, is a truer sense of belonging than just creating a place that looks like it can provide belonging. Right. Is that kind of what we're. Yeah. I think given, given the choice between, uh, given the choice between focusing on, uh, focusing on the branches as it were, and being like, let's make these branches a really great place for nests. Mm -hmm. Um, I would much more rather say, uh, say like let's focus on like the root health like let's make sure that this thing is actually you know and and so when i look at the branches and i see a problem with the branches yeah i want to fix it yeah i want to make those branches more hospitable for all the many birds that will come and roost in them this metaphor will probably fall apart at some point but i'm (laughs) clinging to it while i've got it like yes it's a problem if the branches are not sufficiently open um but the way to fix that problem is not to be like, let's invest more thought in the branches. Let's right. make a subcommittee to talk about the branches. Like the answer is like, 
you actually probably need to get a deeper sense of who Jesus is. um, And your branches will never be right until the things that you're rooted in are Mm -hmm. even more deeply and radically informed by the wide armed welcome of Jesus. Right. Right. So I need to just thank you for how you let us enter into your own tending to the roots Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the Mm -hmm. final chapters of your book. Like it's not, um, I think that, you know, I mean, you really let us into deep intimacy that you have with Jesus. And I think that that's, that's not always an easy thing to talk about, not not necessarily because it's embarrassing, but because it's just so, it's so intimate, it's mm-hmm. so precious, and it's just so personal. Um, and so I think that that was a very brave and beautiful, beautiful thing that you led us into to be able mm-hmm. to see like how, I mean, how very deeply passionate of a love it is. Yeah. Um, and I think you had questions that kind of went with that well i i guess how would you then on along those lines how do we get closer to jesus what what do you do in your life in your prayer in your bible reading even just your your rhythm with the lord what what does that look like in your life and how can that what can we learn how to get closer to jesus in that way yeah um some some of the rhythms that have been helpful for me uh, one is, so, uh, I, I think it's valuable in our prayer life, uh, to, to do a combination of two things. One is, I think it's really helpful to actually like set aside times when we're specifically like, I am going to like pray right now. And that'll be, so one thing, one thing that I've tried to do, um, uh, especially in like, uh, the last year, um, is to, to try to have, uh, my my first act upon waking up before I get out of bed, uh, and my last act before I fall asleep. Um, be just to, to chat with Jesus. And these are not long chats. Like we're not, to, I don't like pull out the prayer list and be like, let me go through this for half an hour, Jesus. No, like I got to get out of bed. I got things to do. Um, but just like to have a conversation and say like, hey, like all the things I'm about to do today are yours. Or like, and then to lie down and to say like, hey, I did a bunch of things today. I'm not sure I nailed them all, but like, it's kind of up to you how it all turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, so so those sorts of rhythms are, are helpful for me. Um, but it's also been helpful with regard to prayer, um, to think of prayer as not just those discrete moments, but also as a sort of a never ending conversation with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, scripture tells us to pray continually, which I think can sound really impractical if it's like, but I also have other things I have to do. Jesus, (laughs) like I also got a job to keep, you know, I got some bills to pay. Um, but what I realized when I was wrestling with that, uh, what I realized is that I have this sort of ongoing inner dialogue in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always call myself Coles in my inner dialogue. I'm like, oh, Coles, you fool. <laughs> you know, like I'm just sort of like talking about the world with myself. Um, and and it was really revolutionary for me when I started to think like, what would happen if I just like invited Jesus to be part of that yeah. dialogue with me? Uh-huh. Uh, like if instead of just talking to myself in my head, I made the way in which I process my ongoing moments, mm-hmm. a conversation with Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in the moments where I'm trying to have a dialogue that I don't want Jesus there for, um, it probably means one of two things. <laughs> it probably means either that's maybe not the most constructive dialogue for me to be having. Like <laughs> if I'm like, Oh Jesus, you don't want to be here for this. Like maybe I should not be having that dialogue or like that's option one. Option two is maybe I haven't yet realized 
what great interest and delight Jesus takes in even the most ordinary parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, that, that maybe there are things that I'm just like, Jesus, all I've got going on for the next hour is like, I got to make dinner. And Jesus is like, Hey, I'm there. Like, you know, put me in, you know, um, I, I, I think to, to welcome Jesus into, into those moments, um, can, can be really beautiful and transformative. Yeah. Um, also, uh, moving just briefly beyond the realm of prayer, um, I'll say that one other practice uh, that I have found enormously helpful um, is is Sabbathing, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and I'm not I'm not one of those like look like Sabbath or else like die you sinner sort of people <laughs> you know though I think there are really good reasons to think that Sabbath is still a thing to which God calls us. Um, I don't, I don't think that we need to be particularly obsessed about like, when does it occur? Like, Mm -hmm. when does the 24 hour period start and end? Uh, I will say for myself um, that when I have actually set aside and said like, okay, for some 24 hour period, somehow in this week, I'm going to find a time when like, I still cook during, uh, I realize people Sabbath differently, but I'm going to find a time when I am only going to choose to do things that I can do out of a spirit of rest. Yeah. Um, uh, that, the, the parts of my life when I have done that have been by far the most emotionally and spiritually healthy parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think th- there's a moment where Jesus is talking about Sabbath. Um, and he says, look, like the Sabbath was made for human beings, not mm-hmm. human beings for the Sabbath. Um, Jesus' engagement with the Sabbath is not to say, like, here's a really strict rule, and if you break it in any way, like, woe to you. Yeah. His point seems to be like, no, this is actually a gift that is given to us because it is part of how we flourish. Like, it is mm. part of how we become the kind of people that we were designed to be. Yeah. Um, and I think when we receive that gift, uh, we are better situated to live like the sort of people who are in touch with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. So beautiful. Yeah. And it's something that that is um, not just like it's not something that's just for single people or married people. Like it's something that cultivates intimacy regardless of what your status is on earth. You know, regardless of the temporary status, it's something that that paves way for the eternal relationship and mm-hmm. and cultivates that and keeps it healthy. Um, Greg, I guess we kind of just have one final question for you as we wrap this up um but in in thinking about belonging um what is your you know grandest dream or vision for the church where that is concerned and and what would you say kind of two-part question what would you say to to people who feel like they fall outside of of the church at this point because we have a lot of listeners who who are in that space yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I, I appreciate that this is a two part question because I think that the two parts dovetail together rather nicely. Um, because I, when I think about like my hope for the, for the future of, of the church and here by the church, I mean, not so much some institutional entity. Right. Um, and I more mean the collective of people who, who love and choose to follow Jesus. Um, my, my vision and my hope for that group of people would be that as we become increasingly invested in actually following Jesus really well, um, we also become increasingly open to the possibility that 
there might be other people who are also following Jesus who are doing it in ways that don't look identical to ours. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a really good thing. Um, that, that Jesus was actually really purposeful in allowing some of us to follow him as LGBTQ people and others of us to follow him as straight people. Uh, and Jesus was really, really purposeful in causing some of us to follow him from a place of more socioeconomic privilege and others of us to follow him from a place of less socioeconomic privilege. And Jesus was really purposeful in causing some of us to naturally feel like we want to lean on one side or another mm -hmm. of so many sociopolitical issues. Mm -hmm. um, and Jesus was really purposeful in causing us to use language differently than one another, in causing us to be invested in different parts of the world, that there's in fact a great divine intentionality, that it is almost as if we are like a body composed of different parts, and boy, somebody should have put that in the Bible or something. Would have been nice. Uh, Would have been great if Paul wrote that somewhere. Uh, uh, Paul. Uh, uh. Uh. <laughs> um, like, I, I, I think... Um, I think it is it, it is possible, and I believe it is possible because Jesus seems to think it is possible. Yeah. Um, for for His body, the people who are following Him, to become increasingly the sort of people who are so invested in Him and so trust His leading that they're they're eager to join arms with other people also following his leading, even when that looks different from mm -hmm. person to person. Yeah. Um, and so I think if that is part one, then when I think about part two, like, like what do we say um, as, as people who in various ways feel on the outside of that equation, um, whether we feel on the outside because that's where we've purposefully chosen to place ourselves or whether we feel on the outside because it feels like others have placed us there on our behalf. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, uh, what I want to say to that group of people, and, and this is something that I often have to say to myself as somebody who is very much seeking to sort of choose into Christian community to the degree that I can, and who yet often finds myself by various people being, being declared not part of that community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you, if you Google Gregory Coles hard enough, you can find, you can find, not only can you find blogs, you can find radio shows dedicated to demonstrating what a heretic Gregory Coles is. Um, it's good now, thing your name is Greg. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it helps me keep these parts of my life separate. Um, so, you know, so I, 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 I think their accusations of heresy are perhaps a bit of a misunderstanding of what I'm saying, mm -hmm. but be that as it may, um, I'm deeply sympathetic to the experience of feeling like I have been at times, by the volition of others, declared outside of the following boundary. Yeah. Um, and I think what, what gives me hope within that experience um, is that the beautiful thing about following Jesus uh, is that ultimately it's not about whether so-and-so looks at you and, and thinks that you're following Jesus. Like the best response to somebody being like, you're not following Jesus is not to argue with them and be like, no, no, I am too. Like the point of the story is not to justify yourself, not to prove mm. that you fit within somebody else's arbitrary boundary. Yeah. The point of the story is to be so deeply devoted to Jesus um, that eventually, you know, maybe those accusations continue to be made. Maybe they don't. Um, but that they would be proven false, not not by the words that you argue, uh, but instead by by the life that you live in pursuit of Jesus. Um, and nobody has the power to keep you from living a life spent in pursuit of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you're the only one who has that power. Like, I'm the only one who has the power to keep me from living a life spent in pursuit of Jesus. Um, and that is a terrifying thing, but it is also the most gloriously beautiful and hope-giving thing that I can imagine. Mm. Greg Coles, thanks for being here, friend. Uh, such a delight. Thanks for having me. Gosh, friends. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as Kelsey and I did, please, please, please follow Gregory Coles to find out more about what he's doing. We barely skim the surface of his expertise and experience, so please check him out. You can find him on his website, gregorycoles.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-R-Y-C-O-L-E-S. You can also find him on Instagram at Gregory underscore Coles or on Twitter at the Gregory Coles. He's also available on Facebook. So please go read No Longer Strangers. We are certainly looking forward to having him back on the show.